As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Now, I know we said last week that squad rotation is the key. And is there even such a thing as a first team? But as the week coming up will likely define our season and possibly our future for the next couple of years, we've got the big guns this week as we're joined by Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas, writers for The Athletic, and making his first appearance for quite some time. Uh, well, second, but the recording died. A man who, even though he forgot his ID at Chelsea last week, gained entry to Stamford Bridge by just whipping out his phone and showing security <laughs> his volleyed goal at Newcastle. It's Lee Dixon. Hello, uh, everyone. Hi, hi, guy. I'll have to correct you there. It was a diving header, not a volley, but there we go. All oh, right. Isn't a diving header a volley anyway, in a sense? But, but okay. A volley with a head, yeah. I'm maybe maybe I'm like wrong. That. Sorry, I... I... <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That's all right. That's fine. Mistakes will happen, as we will talk about (laughs) in this podcast. Now, right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 for six months. That is 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That is theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. Now, we are recording this podcast on the Wednesday morning after the Burnley game. We have the first leg against Olympiacos coming up tomorrow evening and then the North London derby on Sunday. As an opening question, of course, we will talk a little bit about Olympiacos, but uh, let's have a memorable moment against uh, them, as uh, Tao, our producer, has written in the script. We don't like (laughs) to say their names too often. Uh, Lee, we'll start with you. You must have some really proper memorable moments, some of which we would have been there for. What have you got? Yeah, uh, for so many different moments of semi-finals, goals. I I loved um, Canu's goal. in that particular game at White Hart Lane and he flicks it over and I I don't, Amy will tell me what year it is, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) But I I love that goal because it was on my side. I saw everything, you know, I saw it from a distance as usual because I was nowhere near the goal, but I could actually, 
you know, see what he was going to do before. Because I know him, I knew him pretty well. I knew that if he got in that position, certainly body language, he'd done that to me in training a million times. So I kind of knew what he was going to do before before he did it. So from that point of view, that goal stands out for, for me as most other goals. But my, I mean, if you've watched 89, you know about the story about me uh, in the dressing room at White Hart Lane for my first North London derby. And that, that stands out a million miles for you know, the aggression and the uh, ferocity that my own teammates told me that I had to play well in this game because it was the game and it, and it stayed, that memory stayed with me all, all out my Arsenal career and to this day, you know, every time it comes round, people talk about the, you know, the fact it's lost some of its, um, some of its gloss, some of its ferocity. But uh, for me, well, I always go back to that, that time and it, it, it reinvigorates me for that for that particular game. Even though when you watch the games now, I still think there's a, a, a lack of intensity that there used to be in from a playing point of view. And you you correct me if I'm wrong from a supporters' point of view. I, you know you can tell me better than that, better than I can. But I think I think it has lost a little bit. But I still get fired up for it by remembering that that time in the dressing room. I think I think for people who don't know the story, why don't you just paint a bit more of a picture of what happened it is yeah great I, noise, I just it? presumed that everybody who's listening to this pod had watched 89 but maybe they haven't so we need to get the, get out and buy the shame, dvd um shame, shame on you if you haven't but, yeah um... just just getting ready for the game in the dressing room um and then feeling several pairs of eyes on me um looking at me and I, I thought at the time maybe my shorts were on back to front my shirt wasn't quite right there was something going on and it was just that it was just the likes of Paul Davis, Michael Thomas, David Rocastle, uh, Tony Adams to a certain extent. The the homegrown boys, if you like, the ones who who yeah. looking at me being a northerner and perhaps not quite understanding what Arsenal v Tottenham was all about. And you know they they literally threatening me in the dressing room, saying you better play well today because we have to win this game above all other games. So don't mess about, don't make any mistakes. I was absolutely petrified before I went out, and that was before I'd even kicked a ball against the opposition. So yeah, they made me uh, fully realise what that game was all about, and uh, I never forgot that. I never, for- I never forgot that feeling of uh, fear and trepidation going into a game, um, and I and it. I use that as a as an asset moving forward every time we played. Most games, you know, I got to that point, but certainly that game, when you know you're going up against that white shirt, it's almost, you know, the the uh, the red mist comes down and you, you, you're ready yeah. for battle, really. I, I mean, Amy, you can't imagine players threatening other players in the dressing room before the game. One, <laughs> one imagines the, uh, the the sort of players we have now might not take well to that. But um, uh, what about a... I mean, I'm sure you have um, 17, <laughs> as Dio said beforehand, <laughs> memories of a North London derby. Just give us one, your favourite, if you can. OK. Um, tough. But I'm going to go back. Bizarrely, I'm going to pick a game I wasn't at. It's Littlewoods Cup semi-final in 1987. Um, not only was I not at it, but I wasn't even watching it because it wasn't televised, which, <laughs> folks, if you're not as old as me, we used to have to listen to football on radio too, uh, if we were lucky, and it was chosen for a commentary, which was not even that often. But um, 
I remember sort of uh, being in my bedroom. It was a night match and I was a bit too young to go to uh, away North London Derby in those days. Um, and I think that my parents had gone out and we had some sort of childminder somewhere downstairs. And uh, it was a, it was a sort of epic semi-final. And, you know, you think now it's the League Cup and people clearly don't care as much about... I mean, if you even said who won the League Cup last year or the year before, people don't even remember, I think, these days. But it's always back in the 80s, it, it, was, it, it was... Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty significant. Um, it had real value and... Uh, it, it being Arsenal Tottenham uh, at that t- at that time it ha- had a real spice to that semi-final and they played um uh, home and away and it was a, a it was drawn and I, I vaguely remember that the, the 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 replay that they would then decide the game at went down to a, a coin toss where the venue would be um cuz they they didn't know where to play it essentially they weren't going to take it to a neutral ground so there was a coin toss and white hart lane got the uh, nod and there's a epically famous story of tottenham being 1-0 up at half time and the pa stadium announcer announcing how the tottenham fans could get their tickets for the final wow. and that being <laughs> audible in the dressing room apparently yeah. uh and in a classic way of George Graham not needing to do a team talk. I think that team talk was done by the PA guy at, uh, at Tottenham that day. And Arsenal overturned. There was a lot of 1-0 down, 2-1 up in those days. There was a fan scene so named. It was such a famous scoreline at the time. Uh, Arsenal recovered from a 1-0 deficit uh, to win 2-1 on the night and go through with very late goals from Ian Allenson and, God bless him, Dave Rocastle. Uh, and I just remember listening to the radio and they went off to another game somewhere else and came back and there was this kind of white noise like and the commentator was screaming there's been a late drama at White Hart Lane there's been a goal and it seemed to take about five hours before he actually said who had scored and it was obvious that that late goal was going to be late enough to be the winner and um, it was Rocky and it was Arsenal and uh, people who were there claim it was one of the great moments ever to be inside a football ground which I can Im- imagine it was um, but I screamed and the child mind and ran upstairs thinking I was being murdered or something <laughs> uh, it's alright Rocky's got a late winner you yeah, can exactly. relax <laughs> yeah. uh, Nick Hornby uh, Nick Hornby credits that as the time he came out of his depression in his uh, in fever pitch uh, as well and we also by the way were 1-0 down in the final and then went on to win uh, against uh, Liverpool did we not? Um, and won the League Cup. So that was a good result. James, what about you? I was thinking of another comeback, actually, and it's one from 2012, the first 5-2. Arsenal were 2-0 down to Spurs at the Emirates Stadium after half an hour. I think Emmanuel Adebayor had scored one of the goals, a penalty for Tottenham as well, so everyone was pretty fed up. And the particular moment I'm thinking of is the goal that changed really the course of that game and that season, which was Bakary Sanya getting on the end of a cross from Mikel Arteta, actually, uh, who was playing that day and just thumping a header into the far corner to begin the comeback. Obviously, they went on to win 5-2 and they won 5-2 against them again, I think, later the same year. This was in February and then I think they beat them again 5-2 towards the end of the year, November. But yeah, just a really, you know, 
since we moved to the Emirates Stadium, I think that's got to be one of the the best days, really. I probably have that in my in my top five when you think about it. Obviously, there aren't as many happy memories as there have been at Highbury, but that was a really really fun day and felt like um, a turning point in that season, definitely. I quite like it when people say, "Do you remember the five-two against Tottenham?" And we can go, <laughs> "Which one?" Is that yeah, that is a nice, luxurious position to be in. But you know, gives me so much joy. That. Amy always says, "You know, like it." She talks about the idea of like a cough goal, you know, and that was like an ultimate off goal. I think from Sandia, it was just a sort of <laughs> very, very weighty, impactful goal, and there was a lot of emphasis behind it. And he was one of the characters in that team who. I think you really could rely on when it came to the big games and when it came to the derby days. He was, you know, top, top professional backer Sanya and uh, yeah, fantastic goal. Uh, I'm having, um, it's just really, again, for the older uh, listener, uh, look at that, just look at that. Uh, a goal by Liam <laughs> Brady um, in, I think, I don't know, maybe around 1978. For some reason, I wasn't there at White Hart Lane and we beat Spurs 5-0 and uh, Brady just got one of the best goals I've ever seen really, when he nicked it off their... Uh, they were coming out. they sort of taken the ball off us and they were coming out. Brady nicked it and then hit the ball with the outside of his left foot. Oh, Brady won it beautifully. Look at that! Oh, look at that! And it curled round. It's one of those goals where the goalkeeper just watches it fly into the top corner. Mm. And all the Arsenal fans were behind that goal in that shitty away end <laughs> that they used to give us <laughs> the Paxton Road end, wasn't it, or something, at, uh, at uh, White Hart Lane. And... Um, that just went crazy, and it was uh, yes. Uh, Tayo was just informed me Christmas, nineteen seventy-eight. I don't know why I was twenty-third of December actually. What twenty-third of December? Mm. What a, what a lovely present for us. <laughs> just there, happy Christmas, Tottenham fans. Have that. So uh, that that was uh, that was a very very nice moment. I'm sure. By the way, you've all got your own. Charles Rowe wrote to us from Philadelphia. Uh, howdy, Charles. Uh, hello, y'all. Uh, sorry, you know, he started it. Hello, y'all, it says. With Spurs not doing so well uh, recently, um, my hopes in the league are geared towards finishing above them at the end of the season. It's been too long. He was asking for St Totteringham's Day moments. Um, well, we have talked about uh, Tottenham moments, but he wanted to say, I can vividly recall the day of the Lasagna Gate and more recently when Spurs lost to Newcastle 5-1 in their final game, letting us overtake them with much glee. Uh, that was a fun day, by the way. <laughs> I think we can mm. all agree. Well, we were home to Villa that day. Amy, you would know this. Wasn't that um, when uh, when Alan Sugar tweeted something about an incorrect score? Or was it, am I going? Yeah, one one at Newcastle or something yeah, like that. There was some sort of uh, there was some comedy tweet <laughs> that went on somewhere. Properly funny. Uh, also, Charles said, "Love your loving your music recommendations." Made a playlist to keep tracks of your choices. Ooh. Looking forward to hearing more bangers. Cheers from Philadelphia, Charles Rowe. Thank you, Charles. Very, very nice. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. 
Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We better beat uh, with the handbrake at time. So, uh, yes, as I said, we, we're doing this podcast three days after the Burnley game. We won't go into that in too much detail, but I did want to talk about mistakes uh, for a short while. Um, we had a number of messages on t- on Twitter saying they can't wait for Lee to come back on the pod to counter all the Xhaka love. <laughs> I'm not sure there's been a huge amount of Xhaka love. Um, but Lee, um, mistakes do happen in football and Arsenal do yeah. play and Arsenal play out from the back and it should be worth noting that the goal that we scored also came from playing out of the back and and uh, Thomas Partey doing quite a risky little manoeuvre uh, but then suddenly William was in and Aubameyang scored um, so I'm assuming you, you you approve of the way we play out from the back but in that particular moment Xhaka got it very very wrong right? No, I don't, I don't approve with the way we're playing out from the back, to- totally. I mean, okay. I, I approve of playing out from the back, but there's got to be a time and a place and the conditions have got to be right. And you've got to, But the, the very fact that you're playing football in your own box and uh, will lead to mistakes, there's no doubt about that. And it will also lead to goals like we scored um, against Burnley, where you know we roll it out, we suck the opposition onto a certain part of the pitch and then we hit the, the ball into the uh, the space behind into the, between the lines and then you break on a, a back four that has to retreat so yes there's so I'm not going to come on and start being critical of the way they're playing what I think you've then all you've got to do is get to a stage where you are um, you are you have reliable players that don't make that many mistakes and so it'd be wrong of me to jump on Jack's back like I normally uh, and the first to criticise him because I have said in the past though that it's you know it's not his fault that he's um, that people have a go at him when he makes mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes on purpose. And I've always said that I just feel that where the team is right now, that the level of the standard of uh, midfield player we have at the club, then he should be playing because he's he's probably offers more than anybody else but I still think that the standard has dropped so low or yeah. to a standard that enables him to get in the team and do the, the job he does so it again it's, it's the way they're playing and the way the club is um, from a recruitment point of view that, that he hasn't been replaced with some something better and I think long term in order for the club to go to whatever the next level is and at the moment the next level is getting in the top six Um so in order to, to get back to winning ways and be challenging from the league, there's no doubt that, in my mind, Jack is not the answer to that central midfield area. But should he be playing now? Yes, because he's the best of what we've got. Does he make um, rash decisions on the pitch sometimes? And was one of those on Saturday to run towards his goalkeeper a million miles an hour demanding the ball? Um, and I presume Leno looked at that situation and there could be... <laughs> portion of blame to him to say look I you know it's my decision but I'm in possession of the ball what do I do with it if Xhaka's running at me this this quickly he must have something in his mind that he's going to do and the and the, the obvious thing to do was to if you're running that quick you've got to play the ball first time and the ball over to the right back sort of right side of the 
pitch was the, the ball on. The fact that then Leno plays it to his left foot didn't help the situation. His right foot, his right foot, wasn't it? It was the wrong foot. He played it. No, no, no. He played. Yeah, but he played oh, it to right, his left right. foot. He no, couldn't right. actually. But he played it on his right hand side. He had no option than to take either either take it out the other way or give it back to Leno. But the fact that he played it to his left foot meant he couldn't. He couldn't. He didn't feel confident enough to risk swinging his right at a ball that was slightly to his left hand side. So there's all sorts of things that you could have a go at. But I'm not going to sit here and say yeah. The fact that he's, you know, he's made eight mistakes in the Premier League since that have led to goals is the most in the league. Is that's a byproduct, and I'm not always one that I'm not a particularly stat orientated pundit that goes, well, look at that stat. That's because you can make stats work for you or work against a player. You can just pull another stat out that says, yeah, but he's he's made 15 passes that led to goals, so he's seven goals better off than the team of seven goals better off than they would be without him so it's yes. you know it's stuff and nonsense but um i don't even know what the question was i've just gone rattling on it's all right about... it, it was it was a while ago <laughs> no it was i was just really talking about uh, about the fact that we are going to make mistakes um if if uh, if we're trying to play that way um amy I mean, as Lee said there, Bernd Leno has to take some of the blame. He can see the play in front of him. And, and why would he play a pass like that? Surely he looks, looks at Xhaka and goes, you've got a guy two yards behind you, you're under pressure. I don't know. I mean, I think if Xhaka is asking for the ball, then that influences you, as Lee mentioned. Maybe they're, they're, you'd like to think there's enough trust between players that, that perhaps Leno looks at Xhaka and thinks, I trust him, to, that he's got an idea in his mind about what he wants to do. Um, it, it, it's easy you look at it as it happens and afterwards and think why the hell didn't he play it long you don't know how much instruction there is from uh, the manager to be playing short um, we're not party to that kind of detail but it looks it looks I think like Arsenal when Arteta first came and there was a lot more emphasis on playing out from the back then became more flexible to do a bit of both. And I think most people had observed uh, a greater variety of sometimes playing short and sometimes um, the goalie takes a long a long ball to a wide area. For whatever reason, he took the choice that he did and it went as horribly wrong as you could imagine. <laughs> well, think, it's think just of embarrassing, the, really, wasn't it? Well, I mean, even the guy who scored his face was just like... It, like he he looked like it would be absurd to to kind of properly celebrate like what the hell went happened there you know he just got hit bounced off him. Um, it was Amy, grim. if you take if you take that if you take that the other way and say say Jack is our favourite player you know mm. say he's everybody's he's been playing he has been playing a lot better but say everybody loves him and he's our talisman then. You'd be, most people would be looking at that and blaming uh, the goalkeeper and saying, mm, look, yes. Jack has demanded... If Patrick Vieira had ran into that position, everyone goes, look, Patrick wants the ball. He's, mm. He doesn't mind if he's being marked. He should have He should have known the speed he was... Could. So the, the goalkeeper's got to assess the situation. How quick is he coming towards me? And then if he is coming quickly, I have to roll it so he can hit it first time. The fact that he's hit it with pace onto his wrong foot, you can go, actually... You know, Jacques is at least showing willingness to bravery to go into that position and be a brave footballer because that's what we want. We want people to be brave on the ball. And he was, you know, so you can see it on both on both ways. And I'm sure that 
you know, the Leno, if he's got anything about him, will go, do you know what? I'll give him an absolute horrific ball. He can't even do it. He's got to take a touch. And as soon as he takes a touch, you know, both of us are in trouble. So... I think there's a I think there's a sort of interesting tension as well between kind of managerial instruction and player initiative, you know, because I think it was quite clear against Burnley that I think the team had been told, look, play it short whenever you can. There've been games more recently where Leno's gone longer, a bit more frequently. There've been a few where Pepe's played, and you wouldn't think of Pepe as someone who's good in the air, but he's aimed a lot at him quite long. Um, but in a situation like that, you know, almost regardless of the managerial instruction, you want a player to take responsibility for the situation and say, this isn't secure, this isn't safe, and therefore I'm going to take, you know, a more conservative option and go longer. So, and I think Lee makes a really good point. I mean, we all we all know Shaka's quite heavily left-footed, but he is perfectly capable of taking a swing at that with his right and just knocking it out to the flank where he's got David Luiz standing pretty open if he does it first time, if the ball's onto that foot. Um Putting it on his left means he has to take a touch, and that's kind of where the, the trouble actually comes from. Yeah, I mean, you could say that we have improved in this area. Sin is the first time we tried to play out from the back a few seasons ago. Petrček almost passed it into his own goal. So <laughs> yeah. you know, we're, we're, it, it seems to be a step forward. And the other thing to say, uh, we haven't got Alan Smith up front to to mm. uh, to basically collect the ball and you know he's going to hold on to it and bring the midfielders into play. We, we don't have that sort of player, Lee. No, it's, it's a good point. It's, it's a style of play that fits the players we've got is to be a little bit more, you know, and Partey for the goal, you know, if you look at his yeah. calmness on the ball, you know, a the, the calmness on the ball enables people to, to run away from him at that point and go into space and because they go, I've got confidence. He didn't panic. You know, I mean, Burnley scored a goal against Leicester, and and they, you know, they won the ball back in that area. I think Vidra, uh, they closed down and they won it off them, and they scored their goal from um, from that position. So it was very similar. And um, on this occasion, the guy on the ball, I Partey, was a little bit calmer, and he just went, Do you know what? If I just hold on to it and bring the player in to close me down, play a little one-two, um, and then I've got. I've got a pass to hit into that space and William, you know, uh, was in that space and as soon as he got it, as soon as you turn there, the back four, pick pick the back four up and put them behind your own goal because they have to run backwards and uh, and the goal came from that. So, you can you can have it both ways and you can be critical on, on the way they played but they got a goal from it and lost one from it. So, yeah, you know. I, I I think one one other thing, and we don't want to talk about Burnley too long because it is three days ago, and we've got two big games coming up this week. But if Pepe scores uh, either of those chances, particularly the first one, we're probably less worried about Xhaka's mistake, uh, I guess, because it is a, probably a game we should have won. Um, mm. Going forward, we got Olympiacos and then Spurs at the weekend, then Olympiacos again. We started off by talking. Uh, um, Amy about about Tottenham and about our feelings about Tottenham. Is it the right thing to say that the Tottenham game is possibly the least important of the three coming up? It's probably idiotic and my heart ruling my head, but I think you have to go full power for all three. It's three games in a week, <laughs> you know. They'll worry about it afterwards. I'm not throwing a North London derby, sorry. I'm not asking you to throw a North London derby. I'm asking <laughs> you just to comment on the possibility that we're not going to get even Europa League probably in the uh, in the Premier League, but the Europa League itself is our best way of getting something from the season. Maybe, but I mean, as 
um, the conversation has just outlined pretty vividly. Arsenal are terrifically inconsistent, maddeningly so. Uh, <laughs> you know, do you want to predict in any of the games coming up the level of intensity in the team, uh, whether it's going to be one of those where the um, there's a lot of uh, uh, of great play going forward. There's been a few examples recently where there's been a half an hour of play or, or maybe half an hour where Arsenal have looked really spellbinding going forward when everything clicks. Yeah. Is it going to be one of those with mistakes at the back, with nervousness? Uh, I mean, the, the last round of the Europa was against a not particularly brilliant Benfica team. It feels to me like something Arsenal made a million times harder than it maybe needed to be um this team is not an easy one to be certain how they're going to approach things and how it's going to go on the day um so i would be reluctant to say oh you know the europa league is how far arsenal could go in this competition it's really hard to say because you can't depend on them at the minute it's not like they're on a sometimes you find team might be up and down in the league. Arsenal have had seasons like this in the past where they've not had a great league campaign, but you can feel that the energy changes when they're in a cup competition. And you can feel that there's a change of pace, a change of motivation. Lee, I'm sure you can remember this from the latter George Graham years when Arsenal changed from being a, a league team to more of a cup team and had great successes yeah. in the cups where it felt like there was some real average stuff going on in, in the league and they'd get into a cup competition uh, cup game or a European game and the game head was different the uh, and you know, Arsenal won domestic cup double in 93 the European Cup in his cup in 94 and got to the final again in 95 um, these weren't accidents Arsenal were a, a, a cup team and you know obviously Arsenal won the FA Cup last season they they reached the dreaded final I never want to think about as long as I live in Baku not so long ago um, but I don't feel when I've watched Arsenal in the Cups this season that they're sort of suddenly getting into that headspace it's like right we're on something here not yet I hope that will change and, and, and that they can show that this week yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that there's something in that. But James, how upset do you think the fans would be if, let's say, that we got a half-decent result against Olympiacos, but there was still plenty on the second leg, and then he played, and then our, um, Mikel Arteta picked the same team that he, uh, for Spurs that he did against Leicester? They went and beat Leicester, to be fair. They did. I'm, listen, it was a good performance, but there were six changes. There was no Saka. There was no Aubameyang. How would uh, the, the fans react to Mikel Arteta doing that? I, I think you want your very best players out there, obviously, in a, in a North London derby. But I do think that maybe it's just a consequence of the fact that the season has been very congested and there's been a lot of rotation. I don't think there is a clear best 11 in this Arsenal squad. And I think there are about five or six players that you could probably swap in and out without a massive drop in quality. I mean, how big is the gap between, you know, Pablo Marie and Gabriel? How big is the gap between Ceballos and Shaka, between Smith-Rowe and Odegaard, between Pepe and Willian? I don't think it's big. And, and, you know, maybe that says, you know, I'd love there to be a clear established eleven who are the best, but I just don't think Arteta has that right now. So I think he can probably make you know, three or four changes for the derby, freshen up his team quite substantially without weakening it. And I think that's the right approach because I think, I agree with Amy, these are all big games you've got to try and win. Yeah. Um, I, Teo, our producer, uh, we write notes before the um, 
before we do the podcast. And one of them, do you? Um, we <laughs> <laughs> amazing as it may seem, we do, there is some preparation goes into this lead. Um, and one of the things that Teo mentioned was what he called my Mourinho fetish. I suppose I suppose I want to know, Lee. You played in a team. Um, where where pragmatism entertainment wasn't really the first uh, priority. Pragmatism really How dare you. about getting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd react like that, and it's very very funny. But you know what I'm saying, and you know one nil at the Arsenal. And the truth is, by the way, that we all liked singing it as well. And it's not to say we didn't yeah. have entertaining and quality players, but the main thing was do not let in a goal, nick one at the other end, and we'll probably be okay. Um, and and. I would be very happy to see this Arsenal team do that now. And I'm sure there'll be other fans who would. What's your take on the whole thing? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think, you know, if you're saying to me, you've got to pick between playing uh, George Graham way or playing Arsene Wenger way, where do they have most fun? And I would say I had more fun on the pitch with, Arsene Wenger but more fun off the pitch with George Graham <laughs> so because we used to win trophies and celebrate and it was a it was an ongoing thing that we would have this <clears throat> you know this song sung about the one nil to the Arsenal the the gritty determination that we would let's be, before you put you know put us down too much Stoney I know you're not trying to but I'm, for people out there we were we were a really good football team and we we knew what we needed to do to win games and if you said to virtually I would say virtually every single Arsenal fan um, maybe not some of the youngsters who, who have grown up with um, flair football and, and uh, a style of football that we see now in, in all football not just at Arsenal but if you ask every Arsenal fan right you can have you can have a very up and down entertaining team that you can't really rely on to win anything but it's great to watch most of the time or you have a team that will virtually win you a trophy every season and you'll have some amazing nights in Europe and you'll have all this going on but you might just win 1-0 they'll all go for the winning all of them yeah. they might they might say oh no we want to see a better style of football they only start saying that when you when you you stop winning and you play in a pragmatic way and then you go no we want to change this style we're bored with it now so you picking a trophy up every week I didn't hear one person moaning in the you know in the late eighties early nineties mid nineties and then under Wenger it was you know the purple patch was the transition from that old style to the new style that he brought in was just ninety eight to two thousand well to two thousand and four you're looking at a style of football that was obviously the, the cream the, the, the cream and that's what you aim for but if you have to choose you would always choose winning I well I'm talking to myself I would always choose winning so um, it's very and just going back to the you know do we pick Olympiacos or do we pick Tottenham from a you know importance point of view if you if you take the the North London derby out of it, even though we we can't, we're playing them. You go for the winning winning the Europa League all day long in order to transform this football club back yep. to Champions League football and the ability to sign players and the putting us back on that pedestal of being a, a big football club. You go you go for that all day long because they're not going to qualify in the league. So you you can almost say well play who you want against Tottenham as long as we've got some fighters out there and just take our chance. These next two games against Olympiacos are absolutely crucial in my book. Following on from what Lee was saying there, it's um, 
the idea of getting back in the Champions League, I mean, the, the financial figures for Arsenal were analysed very well by um, Swiss Ramble. I'm sure a lot of you would have seen the thread uh, on Twitter. Uh, for for those of us who are not brilliant at facts and figures, uh, he does an incredible job of it all making sense. And when you look at that, being back in the Champions League would be a real, real massive boost uh, in terms of the financial side of things as well as everything else. Because obviously there's been a, a, a critical sense of loss um, during the pandemic. And that is not going to get clawed back very easily. Uh, and even if Arsenal were to be in the Europa League, it doesn't get clawed back that well. Um, but certainly there's a huge incentive. It's absolutely gargantuan. It would be a, a, something transformative, I think, if Arsenal could get over the line in the Europa League, even though it would require this team to find that level uh, that they did in the Cup, uh, in the FA Cup last year, where they get into a headspace where they're like, we can win each individual duel, each individual game, even though we might not be favourites and we can get to the uh, to the end prize. Um, yeah, that would be our team. And just quickly on the Mourinho thing and your fetish, Stoney, I think you're asking <laughs> the wrong question because it's missing right. the point by saying, do you want to go, you know, to more functional winning football? Um, that it, it, People would take functional winning football. They just don't want Mourinho to do it yeah i think that's fair that's enough I, I get that i get that but i'm we're just talking about styles of football here because i do not have a no, Mourinho you're talking, you were the one who all. wanted you were the one who wanted Mourinho to manage arsenal i, I wanted winning football i wanted winning football is what no let's let's not let's let, let's not let him off the hook here he said he wanted Mourinho. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well listen i mean i've watched spurs's, <laughs> i was just going to say i've watched spurs's last couple of games and i hate to say it but they're Going forward, they look a bit more than functional at the moment. So let's hope that yep. comes to an end pretty soon. <laughs> yes, OK. Like and, and we'll leave. Yeah, and we'll, leave. Nice. well, Sunday, in fact. But, well, Saturday's uh, fine. If they have Saturday's a bad training session well. before as well, that's all right with me. What we're going to do now is we're going to do uh, something that we uh, we can only do when Lee's here, uh, which is oh, the Lee gosh. Dixon 1990s quiz, because he loves this. <laughs> Amy. Get you ready. <laughs> <laughs> we got some questions about Lee's career and uh, some of the highlights of that career, and uh, we're going to question him and see uh, see how you go, Lee. Uh, first cool. question one: uh, Lee Dixon's last North London derby was a one-one draw on the 18th of December 2000. Uh, Rebrov scored in the 31st minute, but who scored our 89th minute equaliser? 2000. Did I yes. play? Uh, well, it, le it was your last North London derby, so yes. Oh, the clues in the question. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Maybe you struggle with these questions because you don't listen to them enough. I don't know. Um, but, uh, do you I have it's a your, thought? I think it's your voice. It just like sends me asleep, <laughs> and I just like nod off. Um, Back at me. Go on. Uh, Rebrov. So Rebrov. I used to mark Rebrov, so that would suggest I'd give a goal away. You um, did. Did I? <laughs> you don't know that you're just guessing. I don't. I'm just saying that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who scored? Oh, Where was it? Can I just interject? Do we know if this was home or away? It was at White Hart Lane. It was at White Hart Lane. So, uh, uh, who scored in the 89th minute? Um, do you know? I didn't remember this. Amy, do you know? I'm just racking my brains here. I, I, 
we there were so many late goals scored by Ian Wright, but he'd left by then at yeah, no. Lane. So that's what's kind of thrown me slightly. Um, and also when he scored he scored a late equaliser or win in it while our lane and I was standing I was in the director's box and uh obviously I wasn't playing in that, so it can't be that one. It wasn't that one. No. <laughs> and he wasn't there in two thousand, was he? In a suit and tie, trying not to clap, I imagine, <laughs> or to celebrate too loudly. Uh, no, it wasn't Ian Wright. Can we, can uh, we have a clue? He's not Granit Xhaka, because we were talking about this earlier. It's a pretty decent clue when you find out who it is. Captain Material. Patrick. Captain Material. It is, of course, Patrick Vieira. Patrick Vieira oh, scored the 89th minute equaliser. Unluckily, well, he was made unlucky. Hang on, hang on. What, what do you mean, unlucky? I got <laughs> no, it I mean, right. I All right, there were a few clues. Okay, fair enough. I was just going to say, I could reassure Lee, I've just watched the highlights back as you've been talking, and as far as I can see, he's not a fault on the first goal whatsoever. It was a Thanks, rebound. A Darren Anderton, I think it is, shot, parried out, and it's a diving header rebound from Rebrov, who's playing. He looks to be sort of on the inside right. So Lee's it, fine. Yeah, see, he was on the other side of the pitch. And Vieira heads in from a corner in the last minute. Oh, I remember that. Question two. In Lee Dixon's first North London derby, 10th of September 1988, Amy would have known that date, there were five goals and it was an all-English affair apart from one player. Who would that have been? Lee? All-English, so... All-English, apart from one player. David O'Leary. It was indeed David O'Leary. Very, very good. I'm on fire. Five, two out of two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, ah, yeah, you'll like this one. Oh, well, actually, it'll be interesting to know if you know this. Carnu's wonder goal, which uh, was referenced, of course, by you earlier today, Lee, saw mm. which Tottenham defender embarrassed? Do you oh, know this? Yeah. Good question, it's a good oh. question, isn't it? It is a good is it, question. Uh, I'm going to go for David Howells, but it might be... David Howells? I don't even remember him. Was he a government well, minister? It's obviously not him, then. <laughs> no. Um, it was. Right, oh. Didn't Wrighty punch David Howells in a North London derby once? I hope so. Whoever Probably. It is. <laughs> it's a possibility. It's still not David Howells, whatever was it's, done to him. Uh, I can see it now. I can see him doing it. It was... So he must have, because he was in the inside right position. So he's either right, left side, his centre back, or the left back. And uh, not just in Edinburgh. No, no, you're just going through Tottenham defenders. You can remember now, aren't you? Really, but uh, it's not him. Can we open it up? Can we open it yeah. up? Amy, to, do you know? Uh, Amy, do you know who this is? Um, I I can't remember. <laughs> can we have a clue again? Was it Luke Young? It was Luke oh. Young, indeed. Uh, Teo's clue, by the way, was he wasn't old, OK? <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Which nice. would have been very, very good. Uh, didn't use it, unfortunately. <laughs> Two out of three, Low Lee. You're getting better at your own career. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> we should, do, we should uh, cram these in because as I get a little bit older and my memory goes rapidly, then yeah. I won't be getting any. Next week True. is what you're talking about then, yeah? He actually <laughs> asks you the same questions every week, Lee. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, two, so, two this week. It's it's impressive. Uh, now, normally we'd let Lee go at this point, but we're going to keep him. Bye. For <laughs> oh. <laughs> we're going to keep him for our little game of random arse generator. This is when we name uh, an Arsenal player, and uh, we come up with some random facts about him. And the reason we're keeping him, Lee, is because he was. Uh, someone who did uh, uh, an equally fine job as you did on the other side of the pitch is, of course, Nigel Winterburn. Can we have a random fact about Nigel Winterburn, Lee? Everything I'm thinking of, I can't, we can't be broadcast. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Can I throw something in and then I'd like least, Lee, Lee, I'd like your version of events of this, if you Go remember on. it. Well, um, when Brian McClare missed the penalty in the FA Cup in the last minute into the North yeah. Bank, smashed it in uh, yeah. in the late 80s, um, Nigel went up to him and gave him an earful as he was walking yeah. back to the centre spot. Mm -hmm. And it's fair to say, I think, that that particular moment caused uh, a grudge yeah. that <clears> then <throat> recurred. <laughs> yeah. But that, it was very, very, very obvious when there was the brawl at Old Trafford in 1990 that... Mm. Brian McClare was had uh, waited to get some sort of revenge on Nigel, who he started kicking when he was on the floor. Yeah. Um, what do, do you remember, Nigel uh, having a few words uh, of that picture yeah. and how it might have gone down? <laughs> yeah, but I, I think I, I don't see what Nigel was saying was any different than um, what, and it just it was just very. Um, easily picked up on because he was obviously walked over to a certain part of the pitch and said something to him at that very delicate moment when someone's missed a penalty. So um, it would have been yeah, echoing what everybody else was thinking and probably shouting at McLare at the time. It's just that because they came across each other on the pitch a little bit more because yeah. they on the similar side, you kind of have a little bit more of a um, conf a bit more. There's a bit more going on between players because you. Let's let's just say how it is. When you're playing against somebody on your side, you're doing every single thing you possibly can to put them off the game. So that might be saying things, you know, about how they're playing, saying things about how they look in their kit, upsetting them because they, they've got big shorts on and they've got a big fat ass. Whatever it Parentage. is, you're... yeah, <laughs> I imagine comes into it as well. The lack of so wedlock. It, I don't know. It'd be wrong of me to deny that. Um, <laughs> So you, so the, there was no doubt there'd be some personal stuff going on between the two of them, of, of verbals, and and as you said, Amy, that absolutely came out at the um, at Old Trafford because when you see, you know, I've watched that recently actually. When you see how McLaren um, goes about um, taking it taking it out on Nigel when he was on the floor. Um, but, you know, he got his comeuppance and got the best right hook I've ever seen off Anders Limpar you've ever seen in your life. Um, <laughs> which was, I'm not I'm not condoning any sort of violence. I am. But, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. At that is. moment in time, at that moment in time when there's a teammate on the floor, you you know, you need to stand and stand there and be counted. And, um, and Anders, you know, was probably the littlest player on the pitch, but he, uh, he made That's sure that Brian McLaren knew he was there. And um, again, it was. I think that was born out of yeah that little maybe chat after the penalty. James, can we come to you next? Nigel Winterburn probably scored one of my favourite all-time Arsenal goals against Chelsea. Chelsea? Oh, yeah, beautiful. yeah. Beautiful as, you, as some of you know, I've got a lot of Chelsea fans in my family, so any winning goal against them is of particular 
value to me. But uh, and also in my very limited time playing football, I did play as a left back. So anything that a left back does, I appreciate. Not at any level. You're quite tall for a left back, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't Ranger. very mobile. I wasn't very good. I was sort of like, um, I guess, you know, look at Dan Byrne. He's revolutionising the position. <laughs> but, Following in your footsteps. He's very much, I think I was the model for Dan Byrne. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I love that goal, so it's got to be that for me. Great goal. Uh, I was there and I enjoyed it very much, or as much as I could, seeing as I was sat with Chelsea fans. Uh, Amy, what about you? Nigel Winterburn. When we when we uh, spoke to Nigel for the filming of the 89 um film that was a really really emotional a couple of hours actually and i think i always had nigel down as uh quite quite a straight stoical uh, candid uh no nonsense sort of kind of a guy but he brought a lot of feeling into his memories of that time um i think there was tears at, at points uh, there was a lot of humor there was a lot of um his his memories were incredibly crystal clear he had a very very vivid recall and i'm going to tell a story because i really loved this because it was a bit again maybe something i didn't really expect of nigel but he told us how um his wife was watching the game at home of anfield 89 obviously he was playing and his wife's i think sister-in-law or something like that rang the house phone rang and she went to answer it and it was uh, they had a chat and this this sister-in-law said i've just i've got this funny feeling i've just i don't, I can't explain it i've got like a paranormal feeling that something's going to happen and arsenal's going to score and it was about 10 seconds before arsenal got the open goal <laughs> and then of course the phone rang again just before michael thomas's goal and she said i've got that same feeling and Nigel was telling us this and everybody in the room was like, oh, my God. And <laughs> he, he talked about how he felt, you know, it sounds ridiculous and he wouldn't normally believe stuff like that. But he was quite he was quite taken in by this um, this sixth sense of what was going on that was in his family at the time when Arsenal had that famous game and he was on the pitch. I just want to say I just wanted to say this little bit about it because he's just now you're talking about him I'm like he was give people an idea what he was like he was very very quiet he'd sort of chip in with his with his little bit of humor now and again but he wasn't like at the front he wasn't one of, he wasn't with right he right at the front of the queue when it came to you know banter or anything like that but he was a massive part of the team and he just got got about his business really quietly sat in the same place on the coach every time we went to an away game um, not loud, not shouting, just being there. You kind of had a there was a there was a security about him being around because and he never got injured. He always played. You'd always know what you're going to get from him. And I was a little bit envious of the fact that um, you know because we were more or less were at the same time throughout our careers at Arsenal. I lasted a little bit longer, but he was there a bit before me. So very similar pathways as well, playing in the lower divisions, lower leagues and. So we were quite similar and yet hugely different in personalities. But I always used to sort of envy the fact that the, the, the side he was playing on, you know, kind of relished the way he played with that no-nonsense tattling. And when he got forward, all the crowd seemed to cheer more for him than they did me. And, and I, that was, I'm just being honest and saying, I, I, always, I always thought, what, what does he do that I don't, that they like him more than me? And I always had this inferiority complex about, 
that's mainly my stuff but he didn't court publicity he didn't go out of his way no. to try and be liked he just he was himself and he was a, a perfect team member where you go right we know we're going to get seven out of ten and quite a lot of the time it was nine out of ten out of nigel and he was mo- probably the most underrated player i've ever played with who i never go on his side in training and come against him because i never got past him he always seemed to take the ball off me he always seemed to get you know caused me trouble when we played 8v8s and he was left back and I was right back and so and the only person I've ever seen really get um, get the better of him at times was probably David Beckham and that was the only reason he did that was because David never used to beat anybody he just used to get a yard and whip amazing ball into the box which is very difficult to stop so I've never seen wingers really you know, I've got I've got a list as long as my arm when I, I didn't like playing against him. He was tricky. Did it. Nigel just used to churn these. Nobody got past him. He was an incredible defender. And the fact that he only played once for England or twice or whatever he did was an absolute travesty because he was probably the best defender in the club, without a doubt. I think it's really fascinating listening to you kind of confess that feeling about how you you wondered if if and why people sort of liked him more than you, which I don't think they did, but I think there was a cult hero element to Nigel that was slightly different. And I'm trying to put my finger on why that was. Mm -hmm. And I... I mean, people used to call him Nutty Nigel. I don't know why, because, you know, I don't think personality-wise he's someone that you would regard as nutty. But I think it was more that he had this kind of cranked-up competitiveness that yeah. you could feel. And I almost felt like if he went in to win a tackle, somehow he went in harder than normal. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's true or not. It's just a perception. But it used to feel like when he went to win a ball, he was just 100% going to win it. There was no doubt in his mind or anybody else's yeah. mind. He had this streak um, that he was so precise and so hard. And it wasn't necessarily a strength thing because... It's not like he had Roberto Carlos thunder thighs or or anything like that. He, you know, he was quite lean, um, but he had an incredible power in the way that he used to win the ball or the or the way that he used to run with the ball. And you could see his determination written all over his face. You know, mm. uh, I can imagine it was probably quite intimidating to play against for a lot of people. Um, but maybe that kind of explains why Arsenal fans had this sort of. Uh, extra sort of affection and respect maybe uh, mm-hmm. because of the way that he played which was sort of unusually um teak tough you know um, did you think any of that amy was like connected to the fact that he came out of wimbledon and well and, i was wondering about that because you know, you know i think when you're team had. absolutely if you could survive in the crazy gang you, you know, you probably had to go that extra mile in terms of looking after yourself and making sure you delivered because otherwise the consequences were probably going to be quite tricky for someone who might be a bit quiet and shy. He was one of those characters. He, he didn't have any, he, there was no obvious um, weaknesses in him, in his game or his personality. As in, if you're, if you're at the, in the crazy gang and you show a little bit of vulnerability, then you've got yeah. no chance. And he was a character that was just, he was almost like, well, there he, there's Nigel and he's the same every day and he comes in, he does his work he smashes people in training. He never get past him. He was very, 
you know, you, there was no massive highs and lows with him. You just got the set, you know, you got a level of performance and, and personality. He was the same every day. He was coming to training, you know, he would, you know, I morning, da, da, da. he was fun to be around, but he wasn't the best fun to be around. And he was never down, you know, in November, go, oh, Nigel's a bit down. We need to pick him up. He was just there, you know, got changed, did his stuff, um, left pretty early from the training ground, went home early. Um, and his wife was used to do a lot of marathon running and, and she trained a lot. And so he, you know, he had to go home at times and look after the kids and dinner. he was very, um, reliable and you could go, you know, Nigel's Nigel. And the fact that he was there for as long as he did, and he churned out as many games as he did at that level. Cause I was, you know, I was nine out of 10, I was and then six out of 10 and, sometimes less than six and then other times I might get a 10 out of it. Nigel was just like, right, okay, let's churn these out. Seven, eight, nine, nine, nine. You know, he was just relentless. And that, that I think comes from his personality, but to be able to do that, you can't imagine how difficult that is to do that for 11 years or whatever. He was there, the club 12, whatever it is. It is unbelievably difficult to, to get that level of performance on a regular basis. Something Lee mentioned, by the way, about him being underrated, particularly at international level. I don't know if you remember this, Lee, but I certainly remember. I think it was around 98, maybe, after the double win. There was a kind of clamour for the Arsenal back four to be yeah. the England back four. Mm-hmm. And there was a game where I think I think David Seaman, I think you played maybe Tony Adams and Martin Keown. And France. Nigel was the only one who didn't play. It was when I, I got, I got came back under um, Howard Wilkinson for one game right. and uh, I got knocked out in that game in the 78th minute. I headed the back of Dugary's head and Sparko and woke up with my dad looking over me in the dressing room and that was my end to my England career. And um, But he, we had me in, uh, as you said, Martin, uh, Tony Adams and Nigel was on the bench so that was the closest we ever got to getting the four of us in and it was it was a dream of mine I was like God, bring him on bring him on and he, mm-hmm. he never I got I got took off I don't even know who came on but it, I was off he might have even come on at the end I don't know but we never actually got four of us on the pitch at the same time which you know that was possibly something that maybe could have happened at some point um, I don't. I don't even want to give a winner uh, for this one. Uh, um, I, I think the Arsenal fans are the winners, really, for having to, uh, for being able to watch Nigel Winterburn solidly putting in eight, nine out of ten mm. performances uh, every week. Um, so um, I guess we'll leave it there. Although I, I would like just like to mention him um, <laughs> telling um, Paolo Di Canio what a nutcase he was <laughs> when he pushed Paul Alcock over. <laughs> I do remember watching that, thinking that was absolutely fantastic, and I shared Nigel's sentiment at that point. Uh, Lee. Uh, we'll let you go at this point. Been uh, great to talk to you as always. All right. And uh, thank you very much, Lee Dixon. Cheers, Lee. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. This is handbrake of the Arsenal podcast, brought to you by the Athletic. Thank you to Lee Dixon for the last hour. Uh, still here with me, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Uh, Amy, there was a piece in The Athletic today uh, about uh, Sven Mislintat, written by Rafa Honigstein, about Sven Mislintat. And you wrote on Twitter this morning, I saw the tweet, I will always wonder about that sliding doors moment when Arsenal trusted Raul Sanlehi instead of Sven Mislintat with the club's post-Wenger development. It could have been different. Um, definite regret in that tweet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Twitter being Twitter, I probably reined myself in slightly. Um because uh, I I feel quite strongly about this, and um, I, I, I in times that I've been able to um, have a chat with Sven, I, I found him to be a kind of super impressive and super original thinker about football, and just the kind of person you want at your football club. Um, I think when you look at what he's done at Stuttgart, who are an underperforming club in Germany for quite a while, and he has had a project, so to speak, that he was given full reins of and has made some very, very inspired choices, both as, as coach and uh, in terms of recruitment. They play some pretty good football with some exciting young players uh, who are all flourishing and under his uh, time at Stuttgart they've been promoted and although there was quite a lot of expectancy that they might not survive uh, they've thrived in the Bundesliga and have had a very impressive season uh, including a 5-1 win away at Dortmund which you can imagine would have meant a lot to a guy like Sven who you know is a Dortmund uh, person by his history and in his soul Um and I just think there was an opportunity there to go in a different direction than the direction that the club took. And we know how that worked out, which was complicated, um, problematic at times. And, uh, you know, I'm still regretful in a way when you look back. The season that uh, Missentat left Arsenal uh, was a season, uh, Emery's first season when they missed out on the Champions League by a point. And that's pretty slender margins. And you think about how differently the last year or so could have been had Arsenal kind of recovered Champions League status uh, that much earlier instead of kind of sinking further and, and, and the struggle becomes harder to get back to that aspiration. And some of the targets that Sven had in mind to bring in in that January to try and reclaim Champions League status, Miss Byerpoint, uh with some pretty good quality players, let's just say. And in the end, uh, Arsenal chose Denis Suarez on loan, which was obviously um, a deal favoured by, by Raul Sanyehi. And I think that when I talk about sliding doors, uh, 
that single point that has had a big impact potentially on di- direction that the club has taken, which has been having to drop a bit rather than rise a bit um, from that summer. Uh, says a lot. I-, I think he's a. I think he's a fascinating guy who's. Uh, ideas about football are quite progressive and the sort of thing that Arsenal need. And actually, it was interesting to read in in the interview that he did, which was a great interview with Raphael Honigstein, that he talked about how when he was at Dortmund and they were so successful with Jurgen Klopp, um, that they he based they based a lot of what they were doing on on Wenger's Arsenal. So there's something weirdly cyclical, although the obviously the cycle was broken but ideology wise to have been to have got someone in who was inspired by Wenger's Arsenal and the style of play um trusting young players and uh a kind of what he calls that fast vertical football which is a bit different to the style that Arsenal have at the moment you know I I think given time and, and and given authority um he could have brought in a different thing to what we what 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 happened yeah um i so mean it, 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 uh, do you know what I, it was i sort of share those sentiments uh, amy james i one of the things he did in the piece was he 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 made quite a spirited defense of his signings uh, particularly matteo guenduzzi i mean we'd started off this podcast talking about the mistakes in midfield um not just granite Xhaka, um and yet guenduzzi is out on loan at the moment and and doing very well by by the sounds of it. Yeah, he's doing okay. I don't think he's doing extraordinarily well. Um, I mean, it's a really interesting one on Sven because I, if you're asking me to choose between you know Raus and Yeh, Sven Mislintat, um, I'm pretty clear which side of that I would have you know which route I would have gone down there. And I don't think it's just a sense of the grass always being greener. I like that Sven defends his signings, and it is interesting to read his kind of logic behind them all and his justification of them. I do yeah. think a lot of them are still open to debate. You know, I think you could definitely question uh, signings like Mkhitaryan, Torreira, Lichsteiner. Yeah, for, you know, for every Leno or Aubameyang, who are undoubtedly great signings, I think there are others that haven't panned out. And some of that might be coaching. Some of that might be the way they were used. Um, it's difficult to judge. But uh, yeah, I, I like that he has conviction in what he does. And I like that he has integrity in the decisions he makes and that he doesn't apologise for them, even if they don't pan out. I think in football, that's a very rare trait, very rare thing. I remember having a conversation with somebody about uh, Francis Kagegao, the departed um, chief scout from Arsenal. And, he, and they said of him, you know, the most valuable thing about him is that when he has an opinion on a player... It is absolute. He sticks to it because there are a lot of other variables that go into whether or not a player succeeds at a club. But you want someone who has that integrity in decision making, who's prepared to put their name to something and won't waver from that. And clearly that's something Sven Mislintat has and he's been very successful at Stuttgart subsequently. So it does feel, I think, on balance like a a missed opportunity for Arsenal. Yeah. Um, but now, a piece you wrote, James, uh, along with uh, Tom Warville, was about um, Hector Bellerin and if he goes, mm. uh, which right-backs could Arsenal target to replace him? One of the ones you mentioned, uh, Tarek Lamptey, out for the season, uh, mm. I believe. Um, 
it, it is it a case with Hector? Is it? It's not quite worked out how we'd like. I think Arsenal have had really good service on balance out of Hector Bellerin, and I, and you know I do feel slightly awkward talking about replacing a player who's very much still there and who loves Arsenal and loves London and um, may well be here beyond this season. I do just have the slight sense that a parting of the ways may be on the way because you know for quite a long time now Hector's wanted to try his hand at something else to play in a different league to have a new challenge. And throughout that period, Arsenal have always said, no, you're an important first team player and we want to keep you. But if you're looking in a summer where, you know, we know revenue is down, we know the club's in a difficult financial position. Potentially, this is an area where with two years to go on his contract, he's in his mid-20s at this point, this could be uh, an opportune moment to, to sell the player, if that's something that you're interested in doing. In terms of replacing him, it's a really interesting one because I feel like, you know, Mikel Arteta wants something quite specific from that role from right back. We saw Callum Chambers actually, didn't we, against Burnley playing there um, with a very sort of specific detailing in terms of, you know, stepping into midfield, playing a bit Get more your narrow. Get your head on it. <laughs> Get your head on it as well, which was very useful <laughs> against Burnley. And I do wonder if in the longer term he might want someone who is a bit more of a physical presence than Hector is in that spot. Um, you probably wouldn't say Tarek Lamptey is someone who fits that profile. But it, it, I think it's an interesting area to watch. We've seen Cedric play an increasing amount of football. For me, there's no doubt Bellerin is the better player. But I do wonder if he is suited to the, the specifics of what Arteta wants from that role moving forward. It feels like he's given this licence to Kieran Tierney to kind of bomb on and be that left winger, essentially, in attack. What he's asking from his right back is a little bit more conservative and a little bit more complex. Yeah, I, I, I'm not so sure, uh, uh, Amy, that, that uh, Hector Bellerin is a much better player than Cedric, particularly going forward. Um, but if he does go, maybe our expectations have been a bit high since he came from uh, from Barcelona and we, we really invested a lot in Hector Bellerin, did we not, in terms of hopes? I don't feel disappointed by, by him, um, if that's what you mean. Uh, I do think that, you know, as a young player, when he first broke through, it, it, you know, with his pace, it was so exciting. And, you know, I think there was something that would always be remembered as kind of like Cockney Spanish twang, you know, the way he kind of brought into <laughs> yes. the culture of uh, of the club. And it takes quite a lot of courage to leave your home country and try a, uh, something completely different at the age of 16 or 17 or whatever it was. And... I have a lot of admiration for Hector and I just think that clearly, he, you know, his injury did have some impact on his development and it might just be that the timing of the injury was at a point where he was learning and, and you miss a year and that can be quite difficult. Um, but I, I'm curious just, just in terms of James's piece and, you know, if there is to be uh, a change, um, the kind of replacements like, Maybe I'm completely foolish and illogical, but it, wouldn't you be trying to kind of identify someone similar to Kieran Tierney on the right, if such a thing exists? In the sense that I'm I'm quite intrigued by this idea that your left, you know, one one fullback is a kind of quasi wing, winger, and the other one is much more defensive, because surely that makes you a bit lopsided. Yes. I just, I mean. I'm sure I'm not that sophisticated with my tactical brain and I'm sure I'm missing a whole bunch of stuff, but it makes more sense to me 
in an ideal world that you've got a balanced team where you can do things that make sense on both sides or through the middle. Um, and if you're kind of weighted offensively towards one side and the other side does different stuff, it's interesting I, I know, to I know me. what you mean, Amy, but <laughs> would you not say the Invincibles were weighted to one side? What, yeah, just because of that left left triangle? Um, yeah. Nicole and Perez and, and Henri yeah. were better maybe, than Freddie maybe. and uh, Lauren. Well, and, that, uh, I mean, that's a really interesting... But then I guess, I guess the question is, when you're squad building, it, are you squad building specifically, you know, saying... Okay, I want this kind of play on my right hand side because we have these guys on the left. And then, you know, what happens when Pires does his cruciate, for example? Of as it as it happened, Freddie Jungberg on the other side turned into a very slightly different type of player who mm. had this golden period of goal scoring. But it strikes me as slightly dangerous to to build, you know, in a squad game that we have to build something that is weighted one side. I think that 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 the the invincible team it maybe happened accidentally. Because they just, you know, Omri drifted on towards the left naturally and, and, it, and it worked so well, he was so effective that you wouldn't mess about with that. Perez was just brilliant and turned out to be, um, you know, so uh, his numbers were outstanding in terms of goals and assists for someone who played, uh, you know, wide midfield. And Ashley was just this kind of force of nature from fullback where he, a bit like we were talking about Nigel Winterburn before, had this... A uh, mix of, you know, this stunning de defensive instinct and competitive spirit that made him incredibly difficult to beat, but also with this energy to be able to get up and be a nuisance uh, and help out. And because the quality of his short passing was good, it created those triangles. Uh, and and yeah, I can see why it was quite difficult to recreate that on the other side because it was just the players that were there and their qualities. And I think Arsene created, if you like, this system to suit the players rather than the other way around. But if you're mm. trying to pick players to suit the system, it's that's a different conversation, isn't it? I, I think I think we'd all agree that if we can find another Kieran Tierney on the right hand side, we would. Uh, you wouldn't mind, would you? You wouldn't say, "Oh, well, right, maybe. yeah, I'll take it." You wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't mind. And and as for your point about the left hand side of the invincible team, Ashley Cole, Robert Perez, and Thierry Henry are three of the greatest players to ever play for our mm. club, and would probably walk into any World Eleven now. But, and that's an unusual situation, I think we can agree. Um, let's have a song before we go. James, we'll start with you. Well, I found it quite tricky this week, but you know we were talking about St Totteringham's Day, and the one that I remember um, particularly clearly was also in 2012, actually. I think it was the end of the season where we beat Tottenham 5-2, um, and we won 3-2 at West Brom on the very last day to finish in third place. And that was the game where uh, Arsene Wenger was kind of clutching Pat Rice uh, desperately as we held on. We owe a huge debt of gratitude to Kieran Gibbs, Kieran who Gibbs. obviously plays for West Brom yep. now, funnily enough, um, for a brilliant last minute block, but also Martin Fulop, who I think is kind of forgotten in Arsenal folklore, but was in goal for West Brom that day and absolutely gifted us Shut at one least in, almost. a couple of goals. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you very much, Martin Fulop. But I was thinking about that game and I was thinking about um, Arsene Wenger, you know, hanging on to Pat Rice's tracksuit. And so I chose the song Hold On by Wilson Phillips. Someday somebody's gonna make you wanna turn around and say goodbye Until then, baby, are you gonna let them hold you down and make you cry? Don't you know, don't you know, things will change, things will go your way
Yeah, it's a roundabout way of getting there, but I like it. <laughs> All the same. Amy, what have you got? Well, during the pod, I, I considered going for XTC, making plans for Nigel, just inspired by Great Nigel Winterburn. It's good. It's good. Uh, but my uh, other choice um, before we talked about Nigel Winterburn was... Um, to do with making mistakes, uh, I looked at lots of songs with mistake in the title, and there's some absolute duds as well. There's a few slightly uh, men at work a song called "It's a It's a Mistake." Anyway, um, but I'm gonna go. Uh, I was I think for um, Amy Mann and uh, Wise Up because mm. when the lyrics say it's not gonna stop till you wise up, I just look at this Arsenal team and think. <laughs> You know, stop <laughs> yeah. making these stupid fucking mistakes yeah. and uh, things are going to... I'm longing for a period where progress feels like it's got some substance. Instead of this kind of, you know, snakes and ladders, you, 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 you know, you have a good week and everything looks really promising and you start looking at the table and thinking, what if, and oh, could do that. And then, oh, uh, another ridiculous uh, self-inflicted slip. And it's, it, it really feels like you want it to be sooner rather than later that Arsenal can take a step up the ladder and then stay there for a bit and then take another step up. Good Before choice. Falling over. <laughs> Good choice. Would be very nice. Um, going along with your uh, with your idea of looking at lyrics, um, I was listening to the Wonder Stuff the other day. Uh, unbearable. Uh, the lyrics. Uh, I didn't like you very much when I met you, and now I like you even less. Uh, that is, of course, for Tottenham on Sunday. Uh, so um, I thought you were going to say Granit Xhaka for a minute. But... <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. But uh, no, that's for Spurs. Um, that's it. That has been Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. Thank you to Lee Dixon, Amy Lawrence, James McNicholas, and our producer, Teo Papula. I've been Ian Stone. Stay well, everyone. See you next week. Thank you.